in St. Louis and the Y3J. Ford Mustang takes the lead. Take a big breath and hold it. Here they come. Wheeler. LeClaire. Green. Oh, they're in the wall. They're in the wall. Wheeler head on in the wall. Red flag. Wheeler and LeClaire tangle and Wheeler is head on in the wall. There's no name too big, no name too tame. Home. Welcome everybody. Tom Corbett, Justin St. Louis. Hello. It is late Monday evening. We uh, just got done recording this week's episode, which, if you're listening, came out a day later than it usually does, which, hey, mm. sometimes we have to work with the schedules that we are given and with guests. That's kind of how it goes. Yeah, it is racing season, man, and people are hard to nail down, which you will, you know, uh, we didn't even, I don't think we were considering that during the interview as it was happening, but um, Bones uh, Borsier, who was our guest today, a writer, uh, spoke about trying to track down time with guys like Jeff Bodine back in the 70s, and we are living that right now with trying to line up interviews for the show and, uh, and get guests that have a couple hours to sit down with us. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. And during racing, especially season. when, you know, we're in the triple digits of people we've, uh, yeah, we've already yeah. talked to. So it's true. Yeah. It gets a little more trickier over time. You know, what isn't tricky, Justin, Oh, please let this be a sponsor segue. The absolute heaters Barry oh. Tile has been putting up on their Facebook page. They went on a run the other day, and there was like four posts in one day, and it was all just mwah, chef's kiss. Just mwah. that outdoor grill space. I mean, come on. Those countertops. I mean, if you're not going to bury tile at this point, you've made a bad decision. Do you even have a house? If you are not going to bury tile, you don't. (laughs) You don't. You have somewhere that you live. That's right. Uh, It's just good. It's good quality. Like, this is where we're at in our lives, folks. (laughs) We we, we, We get off on looking at Tile showers and flooring and countertops. I mean, it's big dad emotions right now. It's almost like when you would look at cool cars as a kid. 
Yeah. Because we know we probably can't ever afford these awesome things that Barry Tyler are doing, but we can definitely appreciate them and wish Mm -hmm. we could. You know, I don't know if we can't afford it. I think that the work that they do looks so good that the illusion is that you can't afford it. That could be true. You know, I mean, home improvement sucks, but. Not the uh, show with Tim Allen. That was a good show. Oh, but you know, the, um, the P if you get the right people in there, they can make, uh, a quick, easy job look like you're paying through the nose for it. Uh, yeah. Look at the Barry tile Facebook page, man. Cause it's just uh, super cool. And makes me want to gut this house again and do it over. Don't let your wife hear you say that. No, we're not. We're just not. <laughs> I don't know about you, Justin. Speaking of houses, we had some pretty hard rainstorms last week. Good God. Particularly when I was on the golf course, which is not pleasant. But, you know, there were some warnings, some storm warnings. Always the threat of losing power. Mm-hmm. And... If anything, you know, it's 75 degrees, rainstorm, you got to have the windows shut. If you lose power, it's going to get hot. It's going to get hot real quick. And it's going to get hot, and your kids can't have their tablets because there's no internet, and it's going to be a real miserable afternoon. Unless there's a remedy. A nice standalone generator. From Bushy's Generator Sales and Services. Propane powered. Uh, the number one dealer of Briggs and Stratton in the state and uh, also deals with Kohler generators. And how you, I lost, we lost power here at the house last week a couple of times during the rainstorms. I mean, the wind in Bridport is just stupid all the time. And you're the in like an open valley. Yeah. Yeah. You're a little bit more protected by, you know, it's, pretty suburban there but there's a lot of trees and stuff and you it kind of breaks the wind if i if i may yeah suburban commandos here yeah check yeah. out the movie with hulk hogan uh the old new sports order movie reviews i don't know if suburban commando is going to make the cut good but and i think sterling's actually seen that one. Oh, all right well, anyway, get yourself a generator from Bushies. I actually have, um, I did contact Ben about uh, getting a portable generator for my deal with Scone with Sprint Cars in New England. Cheap plug will be at Bear Ridge this weekend. And uh, I need a little generator to power my computer and power some lights and stuff like that at our at our you know, pit spot every week and, and getting lineups done and all that, you know, I need power now and I'm going to be headed to Bushy's myself at some point to get myself a little portable generator. That's the place to go. Now answer me this though, Justin, if I had maybe an old beat up classic car Mm. and, you know, I've saved my money well and I wanted to start restoring it. Where where would I go to do something like that? 
it's, I think, worth the drive for us to get somebody who does it right because we're not anywhere near Conway, New Hampshire, right? But if you're if you're a car collector, if you're starting a collection, or if you have a, a car that you're trying to restore and you want it done right, you'll pretty much go anywhere to get it. I mean, guys will drive to Indiana for an engine or whatever. So do the right thing for your car and bring it up to Stefan Beatty and go see go see him at uh, Valley Collision and Restoration in Albany, New Hampshire, just outside of Conway. And he's got long-term projects. Like this isn't just a, you know, tape it off and sand it and spray it. This is real car show quality, you know, trophy winning stuff that you can get it. Listen, if if you got a little fender bit, I just bought a new car and it's not new. It's a 2014. And I didn't know it until I got it home that the tailgate had been wrecked at one point and the previous owner had knocked the dents out with a ball peen pan- hammer from the inside. So now I've got this golf ball effect going on on the rear quarter or on the uh, the tailgate. And I think about this ad all the time. <laughs> And we have a vacation scheduled for Conway, New Hampshire in the end of July. And I'm thinking, I wonder if Stefan could squeeze me in to fix my car while I'm on vacation up there. <laughs> it's all coming together, man. Right on. <laughs> Please check out all our sponsors. They make it possible for us to bring this show to you free every single week. I got one more thing to add about Valley Collision and Restoration. Near was just at Thunder Road last week, the New England Antique Racers. And there were a ton of good-looking cars there. Listen, he does vintage race cars, too. Um, that thing is really taken off, that whole scene up in, up here. Down in New York, they'll get 50 of them a night with the Mohawk Valley Club. Um, but Thunder Road, I think, had 25. I mean, that's that's a nice field. So if you're looking to get a nice racer's touch on a – vintage race car that's your that's the place to go because he knows what they're supposed to look like he's a racer right go ahead go ahead well this was a fun interview and it went longer than probably you and i were expecting so we're going to keep it tight here on the open which i'm sure makes a few people that listen very happy And we'll just go ahead and let Justin make today's introduction. Our guest this week is one of the most celebrated authors and historians in motorsports right now. Uh, Right now, probably the last 30, 40 years anyway, at least. Um, He has written books uh, either as the author or co-author with Bill Simpson, uh, Richie Evans, Tony Stewart, Dave Darland, and he gets to have lunch with guys like Parnelli Jones and the Unsers all the time. Uh, he might be the coolest guy on the planet. But more importantly, he has survived a friendship with Robin Miller, the late, great Robin Miller. So uh, we're going to find out a whole lot more. Uh, he's a New England guy who has made it big on the uh, big time. And he is also an unwitting uh, mentor uh, to me throughout my formative years as a writer and uh, has become a friend over the last few years. So it's a great pleasure to have Bones Borsier. I hope I'm saying last name because as a Frenchman, I want to say Borsier, and I've actually never heard you say it. That's fine. It doesn't matter. I answer to anything. So, all right. Thank you for the introduction. It was pretty lofty. I think you uh, you need to have better standards, maybe, for your mentors. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
it's a pleasure to join you guys. Yeah. So we usually kick this off kind of at the beginning with when did, or when at least do you remember motorsports coming into your life? Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I say little kid, when I was probably 11 or 12, um, the town I grew up in, Southington, Connecticut, is about, well, my home was about seven miles from a little quarter mile asphalt track called Plainville Stadium. It's been gone since, uh, I think, 1981. But uh, the the girl who lived next door to me was dating a guy who worked on a modified stock car. And I sort of badgered my mom into taking us. And my mom, coincidentally, years before that, when she was a nursing student, had gone to the Waterford Speedball uh, several times with friends from, you know, the bunch of the girls at, at nursing school used to go. So racing wasn't something that she was opposed to. And she was happy to uh, take us over there, my brother and sister and I, on a Saturday night. And I was really the only one who, they all liked it, but I was the only one who really was hooked by it. And so I started sort of going with the the next door neighbor girl who used to go to see her boyfriend at the races. And back then there were no girls in the, you know, allowed in the pits. So I'd sit with her during the races and, and uh, later on we'd see her boyfriend and hang around a little bit. And um, then later on when they broke up, I started hitchhiking to the races. It was only about seven miles, so. In the in the early seventies, everybody hitchhiked anyway, so um, it was that was a good, convenient way to get to the racetrack. I would tell my mom that I was going with the people who lived around the corner, and I would walk around the corner and stick my thumb out, and half an hour later, I'd be at Plainville. That was it. That's a that's okay. I, I that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, tell tell us more about Plainville because. Our, our listeners may not know. Hell, I don't even know much about Plainville. Um, you know, it's modified. It's modified country. But who's there? You know, what's it like down there? Well, it was a it was a dead flat. Well, not dead flat. It was a almost flat quarter mile racetrack with fairly tight turns. And yet, for some reason, I, I don't know why this is, but you know whether the radius was exactly right on the corners. Or, you know, you you don't think of a a flat quarter mile being very conducive to passing, but it was, you know, every week there were guys coming from the back to win the races. And it was the younger guys on the, on the grid were Reggie Ruggiero and Stan Greger and Ronnie Rocco. They were the, Ronnie was a couple of years younger than, than Stanley and Reggie, but they were the, the three sort of uh, up and coming kids. And the older guys were Dave Alkis, who was in the near, uh, you know, New England auto racers hall of fame and, Jet Membrino, who's also in the Hall of Fame, uh, Ronnie Wyckoff, who's in the Hall of Fame, and all of those guys raced there. Uh, before I got there, guys like Eddie Flanke and Denny Zimmerman raced there quite a bit. Everybody at one time or another has been there uh, and, and raced there. It seems like, but but the regulars in that period when I were when I started going was, uh, you know, it was Dave Alkis and Reggie Ruggiero and Jet Membrino and Ronnie Rocco and Stan Greger. They were the guys who were kind of and Bob Vivari, uh they were the guys that were winning the races there. It was, uh, you know, if you look at like A-level track, or if you compare it to baseball, you know, the major league short track in our area probably would have been Stafford with, with maybe Thompson just a tick behind. And then the double-A sort of baseball racetracks would have been Riverside Park and, you know, Waterford, Westboro, Seekonk, and the you know the very bottom the rookie league or maybe maybe triple a would have been plainville 
it, it didn't pay a lot. It wasn't a fancy place. It didn't have a lot of seats, but it, uh, it, it introduced a lot of people to racing because that's, you know, New Britain is right next door. Hartford is very close. Waterbury's close. Bristol, uh, where ESPN is headquartered, uh, that headquarters is probably maybe three miles as the crow flies from Plainville. So it's a, it's a pretty high, it's very suburban, but a lot of people in a small area. So I think it introduced a lot of people to, to racing, despite the fact that it was, you know, nothing fancy. Had great French fries. I can still, you know, it sounds corny to say it, but I can still sort of smell the French fries there. If I, if I picture our car driving into the racetrack and parking, uh, you know, that was like what you would, what you'd get hit with was that aroma of French fries. So it was a, it was a great place to be a kid. Uh, I regret sort of that later on, you know, I, I started going to other tracks and Plainville was, you know, the rumor was that it was going to shut down and then it became a fact as 80 and 81 rolled along. And uh, I kind of regret that I didn't go back and watch the last few races there, but I'd always, I sort of graduated is the wrong word, but I was going to other Saturday night tracks by then. And so I wasn't as nostalgic as I am now, you know what I mean? I, I, I wish I had gone just to, just to see those last few races there. I'm but it was, a, it was a, it was like a dive, you know, it's like a dive bar type of racetrack. Let's put it that way. Nothing fancy, but, but fun. Ooh, yeah. We're into that. Yeah. yeah. Nothing wrong with a skeezy dive bar. Oh, uh, not at all. Well, I, I always, I, I found like a lot with kids. I gravitated like towards math. My sister had a brain more for writing and creative writing. Were you always someone that kind of enjoyed writing? Yeah, I don't know why this is, but when I was a kid, um, I was sick a lot when I was a kid. I had asthma pretty bad when I was, you know, a little kid. And, and even up into those years when I was going to the races. And, you know, I, was, I wasn't an indoor type kid, but I was probably more of an indoor kid than some people were. So I read a lot. I read uh newspapers sort of religiously and and uh read you know books by sports writers and things like that and it it wasn't just sports but i would read you know uh, the hartford current and, and the new york papers and i i sort of early on i latched on to the idea that different writers had different styles so i didn't just read a sports story i i was kind of interested in you know oh i'm gonna like this one because so-and-so wrote it um, so I, I guess I had an interest in writing that way. And then, uh, I sort of combined that with the racing, I guess. And, and there was a fellow named Mike Adiscavage who was and is, I think one of the best racing photographers in the country probably, but I was absolutely, I was, yeah, I was very lucky that he was from Southington also. And by this point, this is like 76 or so, uh, I was bumming race uh, rides to the races with him to Stafford and Thompson and. Uh, wherever else we would go, but he was a track photographer at Stafford. So I would ride up there with him. I would work in his photo booth. Uh, our deal was sort of when the modifieds aren't on the track, you know, when the street stocks are running or something else, I'll work in the booth then, but I've got to see the modifieds. And I had nothing against those other classes, but that was the deal I negotiated. You know what I mean? I, I, I'd, I'd help his wife in the photo booth. So uh, it actually was his girlfriend at the time. And when they were getting married, uh, in the summer of 76, he was writing for the Meriden, Connecticut, uh, record journal, which was an afternoon paper. He did a Friday column 
about the weekend's upcoming races, and then he would do a Monday column about the results all around New England. And he needed somebody to uh, to fill in for him while he was gone. And he asked me if I'd take a shot at it. And, he, you know, he knew that I liked writing, I guess. And, and uh, I, I was I was sort of very into ra- uh, racing trivia. We used to play trivia contests all the time, and I'd beat him. And so he figured I knew enough about the sport that if I – if I put even like a halfway decent uh, column together, uh, the editors at the paper could work it into something good. So that was my first gig, really, was writing two or three uh, columns for him while he was on his honeymoon. And then a couple of weeks after that, the people at Gator Racing News, which was another you know great weekly paper back then out of Syracuse. Yeah, absolutely. They wanted Mike to do a New England column for them, and he was too busy. Uh, with his, you know, he always shot for daily papers and, and, you know, he had his track photography thing going on. So he said, I, I don't have time to do it, but I've got a guy that, you know, a young guy that I think would be happy to do it. So we kind of sent him a sample column that week. Uh, this was in the typewriter days, you know, no, there was no uh, backspacing. There, you know, everything was white out and typewriters and very antiquated stuff. And, and I wrote them a sample column that they liked enough that they ran it that week, which kind of surprised me. So ever since then, I've probably almost every week, you know, for the next 20 years, some maybe more than that, somewhere I had a column anyway for the next, uh, you know, as long as uh, I was at Speedway scene through the end of uh, 88, and then it track died, and then it stock car racing and open wheel and Speedway illustrated. So there was, a, I've been writing sort of nonstop since about 70, August of 76 or so. Long time. I think Justin and I have both mentioned it on this show, however many times. You know, starting out, we're probably fairly rubbish. And <laughs> we were both very blessed to have people like a Ken Squire tell us that we were rubbish and this is what you're doing wrong and here's what you need to do and here's your homework at, you know, yeah. 25, 26 years old. Like, no, go home, do this. Give me the give me the I answers later. Lucky. I mean, Mike was Mike was a good uh, when I I'll never forget. You know, back then, like I said, your column was typed on a typewriter. It was mailed via mail, you know, real mail. So you had to get it done by whatever uh-huh. day. Get it mailed to Syracuse so they get it in time for the deadline. But I I remember showing him this sample column in the driveway at my house. He came over to pick it up, and he was going to drive to the post office and mail it. He got it out of the manila envelope that I had it in, and he gave it a quick read. And he said, you made one big mistake. He said, if you're going to turn in a, any, anything that's going to be published, you got to have your name on it. And he wrote, the only thing he really knew me by was, my nickname has been Bones since I was a little kid because I was so skinny. So he wrote Bones Borsier on the top of it, and he sent it to them. And I was going to say, well, put my real name on there, but it worked out pretty well that he didn't because i think people remember nicknames sometimes better than real names but that was the only you know he that was the only real advice he gave me he liked the first one and they they liked it i guess because they ran it and you know every now and then there were people and and ken squire was one of them i remember talking to ken you know years ago when i when i worked at, at speedway scene you know you'd run run into people like him or mike joy or uh, you know, Bill, the late great Bill Welch, who was an announcer at Stafford for a long time. Uh, you know, there were guys like them who would sometimes pull you aside and offer some 
criticism that I know they meant to be constructive. You know, it was never hurtful or anything like that, but just, you know, you might want to try this or you might want to try that. And uh, I always, I, I respected people like that so much that I took it on board uh, automatically. And, and, you know, even to this day, there are times when people will say something and you listen to all of it and sort of, I guess, take on board whatever, whatever you think you should or whatever fits. But uh, yeah, there's, you know, people like that, that, that I, I can see where like in, in the case of you guys where somebody like Ken, or even the late Tom Curley, and you know that guys like that to be in your neighborhood, uh, who are happy enough to put a hand on your shoulder and give you advice, you'd be a fool not to listen to it. You know, so yeah, uh, yeah I can appreciate that one hundred percent. I got notes. I got a, or a strongly worded suggestion from Tom Curley, and I don't think I'd ever really met him in person. Really, he got it to me. <laughs> that would be intimidating. I think the only- we were at Devil's Bowl and. They were back and forth, and Brian Hoare was kind of biting his time. And I mentioned that it was like Ali and Zaire, like rope-a-doping, just waiting till the end. And he's got a strong message to me that said, do not compare racing to any other sport. Wow, that's something, huh? Yeah. The only time I remember critical notes, when I was at Speedway Scene, uh, we would occasionally take a jab at NASCAR if we thought they, you know, if they treated the Northeast racers badly in our opinions. And I would get notes from Jim Hunter, who was a, a, a wonder, one of my favorite people in the, in the sport ever, uh, no longer with us, unfortunately, but Jim would send a, uh, a note occasionally. And then it got to be more than occasionally. And we figured out their system. If they were a little bit mad, you'd get a note in the mail on a plane, you know, on NASCAR stationary, but it was just black ink heading NASCAR. If if they were real mad, uh, they would send it to you with a color letter head, you know, with the old NASCAR <laughs> Ranger logo. And if they were furious, which they quite often were, you'd get the high dollar embossed stationary, you know, where you know, I mean it was beautiful, beautiful. You know which desk it came from, yeah. Yeah. It was, we could always, Val and I, Val Lasser, the late uh, Val Lasser, who, you know, was the head of Speedway Scene for so, you know, owned Speedway Scene. Uh, he would always tell me, we got a letter today from, from NASCAR, and they're really mad this time, you know, because we could tell even before we opened it just by the quality of the stationery. It's amazing. That wasn't always constructive criticism. It no. Was just, you know, I mean, and I like uh, Jim, like I said, Jim Hunter remains one of my favorite people. He was a, at, you know, he'd been a newspaper guy before. He'd been a PR man for Chrysler and for Firestone and for different racetracks. And he had run Darlington for a while. He'd run Talladega for a while. And he was in a public relations, uh, vice president of communications, I think he was, uh, for NASCAR at the time. So it was his job to let me know, you know, whether they were mad or not. But but he, I never, we, we, nor did he. Neither one of us ever took it personally. I'd see him at the racetrack, and we'd have a laugh and watch the races. And he was a wonderful guy. I, I always said that you know that was he was one of the greatest assets that NASCAR ever had. I think because he could relate to people on every level, uh, from press box to pits to grandstands to to uh, you know ticket ta- ticket takers. Anybody. He was just a, a you know down to earth guy, super guy. When you wrote that first column, um, was there anybody that you tried to pattern yourself after, or did you just bang it out on the typewriter and that was it? 
No, I, I, I think I, you know, they, they, they didn't give me any instructions. They, like I said, Mike just sort of said, write a sample column for, you know, for these guys. They want to see if, uh, if you can do this. And I just tried to do it like a hitting to all bases type of column where make sure I got, you know, the result, not the results, but the, beyond the goings on from Stafford, from Thompson, all these racetracks. And even, you know, if, if Oxford had an open show coming up, you know, cause it be, you were going to be the new England columnist. So they weren't really, uh, pointed, uh, opinion pieces or anything like that yet. Uh, later on, once I got working for speedway scene and, and Val, I sort of on my own sort of moved that, you know, I, now I was one guy in a field of new England writers working for a new England based paper. So I started shifting it on my own to more of a, where a column was about one single thing, right? You know, the way you'd think of, of a daily newspaper column being rather than just a, you know, a collection of what's going on in new England type race anecdotes. Um, but, the guys I liked a lot, you really couldn't pattern yourself after, you know, sports writers and political writers like Mike Barnacle and uh, sports writers like Mike Lupica and Jimmy Breslin, you know, guys that I still read. Uh, I have collections of their columns today um, that I sometimes look at, not necessarily as inspiration, but you end up being inspired by great writing, I think. You know, it's like if you read Ernest Hemingway, you can't help but <laughs> if you put that down, you're going to be a better writer. <laughs> Once you start doing it, but you'd be a fool to try to pattern yourself after those people only because they're, you know, you've got to, I think you've got to have your own, uh, singular voice, I guess, if that's the right way to put it, because they all, you know, I don't think any of those people tried consciously to sound what they ended up sounding like. That was just them. Right. So I think just look at something and filter it through your own, um, your own brain and, and put it in words that you think are going to resonate and, and hit home. That's the whole battle right there, I think. But if you try to try to pattern yourself after somebody, it's probably not going to work. Pete Zanardi, um, I know a friend of yours and mine, Justin. Yeah, definitely. He was writing for the Hartford Times when I was young. And he was one of the first writers I ever saw uh, in a, in a daily type setting who had quotes in his racing stories and he was a sports writer he was a he was trained to be a sports writer he wasn't just a racing writer so when he started writing about racing he treated it as if he was going to a triple a baseball game and covering that you know you get some quotes from the winning pitcher or or whoever or the guy who hit the winning home run so if pete wrote a racing story he would have quotes from bugsy stevens or eddie flemke or whoever and and, and i did gravitate to that you know the fact that it was uh, it, it made it more um, people-based once I saw that. You know, he wrote a story on Richie Evans. Uh, it was in the, <laughs> not that it hit home or anything, but it was in the 1980, uh, the uh, April 1974 issue of Stock Car Racing Magazine. That's how well I remember it. Uh, it was a profile on Richie Evans, who had just won the, the 1973 modified title. And the story opened, the opening paragraph was about Richie surrounded by a gang of his friends sitting in a bar playing uh, what we, you guys might not remember, but one of the earliest video games was a game called Pong. It was just a, you know, like a, almost we're not like that, a table. We're not that young. We, we get it. 
the table tennis thing that you just hit this little thing. It wasn't a ball, but you'd hit it back and forth electronically. And uh, the the way Pete wrote wrote this story, you know how into the game Richie was, and how competitive he was, and um, and you know that these other people were we were sort of joining in, you know, talking about, hey, you ran good at you, Jerome last week, and that kind of thing. Um, it it made you know I was when that came out, I was thirteen years old, but I remember reading that, and you could sort of picture yourself being in that bar. You know, I'd never been in a bar. I was 13, but I'd seen bars in movies, and you could almost smell the cigarette smoke and picture these people in this dark setting and picture this guy playing this electronic uh, paddleball game. And when I read that, I, that was sort of the, the the clincher that where I thought this is something I want to do because for the first time I saw, and, and nothing against Mike, Mike's columns, Mike Adescavage's columns were just different. You know, they were, they were, you know, results oriented and upcoming events oriented. They weren't really uh, topical because that's not what the paper wanted wanted from him. But when I read that story in Stock Car Racing Magazine that Pete had done, it made me realize for the first time that you could um, not only get to know these colorful people, but you could be the one to tell their stories. And all of a sudden it became like, man, this is this is the game right here. You know, this is. I never really had any desire to race. I never had any desire to, or mechanical aptitude enough to work on race cars. Um, but the writing, that part of the writing really fascinated me, that you could be around these, you know, just these fascinating, interesting, colorful people and bring them. If I can fawn over you for a minute, <laughs> I was eight years old and the April 1991 edition of Trackside Magazine, you profiled Robbie Crouch. Oh, and. Yeah that article changed my life and the trajectory at, at which I would approach racing. Cause I always wanted to be Richard Petty. Right. But I ended up wanting to be Chris Economaki because of that article. And it, it was the same type of setting where you walked into a diner or something and there's a guy bellering about the lottery or, or, or no, it was about taxes or something like that. And uh, he said, if I, if I, went out and bought a boat because I predicted that I would win the lottery. Well, people would call me a damn fool, wouldn't they? And and then we get into, here comes Robbie Crouch to sit down at the table. And it was that, just setting the scene is, I think, the most important part of telling a story, right? You can, like I said, you can you can picture these people in that environment, and all of a sudden the reader now is is with you on that journey. You know, he's not I'll never forget reading a story once about Bugsy and it was Bugsy Stevens and it was in stock car racing magazine and the writer described him and it was, it wasn't Pete Zanardi. It was a guy way before that. And the writer described him as colorful, but he never explained a damn thing about what made him colorful, you know? And, and I thought later, I mean, once I got to know Bugsy, you know, pretty well, there is so much color in that guy. And I thought what a missed opportunity some of those early writers and, and it wasn't necessarily their fault. It was because maybe racing, racing writing hadn't really evolved to that point, but you know, now you could write about it instead of just saying, Hey, this guy's really colorful. Tell me why he's colorful. You Bugsy know, grabbing your ass while you're standing at the John is colorful, right? Yeah. Or watching yeah. him grab somebody else's ass. While you're standing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, you know, the, the, the example with Robbie, I mean, you know, 
what could be more fun than going out and ha- and hanging with Robbie Crouch for a day? You know what I mean? And trying to tell his story to people. You know, and I say fun. I mean, it's a serious thing, too, because you're there to sort of do a job. But you get back in the car at the end of the day, and, and whether you had a tape recorder or today, everything's digital. But, you know, you knew that you were going home with a recorder full of great stuff, and you couldn't wait to, to get home and, and, and tell people that story. And that's sort of the way I felt when I read that that Evans story that, that Zanardi had done, you know, I wanted to be in that bar with those people, not, not just to be there having a beer and playing that silly paddle ball game, but I wanted to know, I wanted to, I wanted a shot at, you know, being the guy who could help share those stories with, with readers. You know, like I said, I never wanted to, never wanted to drive, never wanted to do any of that, but I, I realized early on that I really liked writing and I, writing about racing and I didn't, I think there are people back then, especially in, with the trade papers, people that did it because it was a way to get in free to the races. I don't think they took writing seriously or any of that. But to me, right from the very beginning, I took it, you know, you had fun with it, but I took it very seriously at the same time. I had a lot of fun with it, but it wasn't just a, it wasn't a game. You know, it was something you did, you know, you wanted to get better at it. You, you know, you read your stuff and you tried to, you know, you tried to make the next one better than the last one. And, and, uh, and most importantly, like I said, just tell the stories of those people. And if you write about colorful enough people or interesting enough people, um, the story, the, the story or the column or whatever it is you're doing will, will follow that. You know, if they're interesting, the story will be interesting if you do it right, you know, and, and uh, with a guy like Crouch, I mean, I, I think all, you know, i trips I made to Vermont to interview Curly or to interview Squire or, you know, to go to Thunder Road. Uh, I never made it to Catamount, damn it. That still angers me. But, but you know, you knew you knew before you went up there why you were going there. You know, you had an appointment to go to go and interview somebody that you thought was pretty damn interesting. And uh, that, that made the, you know, the four-hour drive or whatever it was worthwhile. And then, like I said before, you, you were driving home with that tape recorder next to you which was like uh, all of a sudden it was like a bar of gold because it was, it was, uh, you know, that was, that was, uh, you knew that what you had in that tape recorder was great stuff and you couldn't wait to get home and start working on it. You're doing, you know, a feature on a driver. How do you balance, you know, getting to know somebody and being friendly with somebody and still kind of remaining impartial to tell, you know, as you see a true story. The hard part is, and this happened a lot when I was, you know, when you're writing for a weekly paper and hanging around with the same people three or four nights a week, you, it's just like regular life. I mean, if, if you lived in the same town all your life and went to the same bars every Friday, Saturday and Sunday night, you would make friends with certain people and others you just might not connect with you might not dislike them but you know i think just who knows why people connect you know you make friends with this guy you don't make friends with that guy and i think it is a fine line you have to walk uh i think if anything over the years i've sort of been guilty at maybe under covering um guys who i was pretty close to because i never wanted to be thought of as you know Oh, you're only writing good things about that guy because you're his buddy, you know? And, and so there were a lot of weeks when I 
probably should have written columns about, you know, some great driver, but he was sort of a pal. And instead I, you know, I thought about some other interesting story in the pits and I wrote about that instead. It is a fine line. I mean, to this day, even it's, you know, um, I, sometimes you can't help it. I mean, you know, you become friends with people and if they go on, if they're, you know, I was fairly friendly, still am probably with, uh, with Tony Stewart from the time I moved out here and ended up writing, you know, a small handful of magazine stories about that over the years. But at this, you know, I would have been friends with that guy if he ran 15th every week because he just sort of hit it off, you know, personally or, you know, you think somebody's funny or they, you know, you get along or you don't. But it just so happened that, you know, he was winning, you know, he jumped in an Indy. The year I moved out here was the first year of the IRL, Indy Racing League. So he's, that was his first season in Indy cars. And, and all of a sudden the guy, you know, he's the fastest guy in the league as a rookie well how are you not going to write about that you know and, and the fact that he's your buddy you really can't you can't let that stand in the way you know and it, fortunately i mean he might be a really good example of this because he never cared what you wrote about him and there were times when i was critical of him about him and it, it didn't it didn't anger him in any way i think he just figured i was doing my job and he was doing his job and you're not always going to agree on things but it is a it is a fine line, you know. I know exactly what what you're what you're bringing up because it's it, it's hard to walk that line between. I, I I've always I think the best thing to do is to just try to err on the side of, um, maybe not covering that guy, rather than, you know, un, you're better off under covering that person than over covering that person because there's always going to be that. You know, if you write about the guy that wins, the guy that runs fifth every week is going to think, you know, well, you're only writing about him because he's your buddy. You know what I mean? We, so, we had to we had to balance that with radio uh, with Nick Sweet versus Derek O'Donnell. Um, Derek is inherently a little bit closed off. Uh, he's just kind of a hard nut to crack. And I think it's by design. Whereas we've been friends with Nick Sweet for 20 years and they're battling one and two every week for years. Right it's it's easier to talk about next week because he's going to talk to you. Um, and then you get labeled as, you know, you've got the bias. I, I, Tom's shaking his head right now. I mean. Yeah, and you have, yeah, you know, the boss is saying, hey, make sure you talk to Nick before the race. Make sure you <laughs> right, talk to Nick. Yeah. He gives us good sound bites. Make sure you talk to him. Right. And yeah, even he gets annoyed when, you know, you hit a three, four-week stretch. We had a couple where we're at Thunder Road for almost three straight weeks. And even Nick Sweet saying, dude, I don't know what you want me to say. Yeah. We're talking twice a week. Yeah. I remember when, when Jeff Bodine was winning a lot of races. That we, he was driving Dick Armstrong's Modified in the second half of the 70s, 75, 76, 77, 78. In that period, um, I wrote about him less than maybe he deserved, but it wasn't. I always liked Jeff. And, and when I did talk to him, you know, either by phone or, you know, on a, a quiet moments at the racetrack, he was a great interview. The hard thing about Jeff was he was, I hate to use the word one man band because they had a lot of help on the race car, but Jeff was the director of the, of the whole operation driver. Sure. Yeah. Even if they had a guy who was the chief mechanic, it was Jeff's call. You know, a lot of times Jeff was the one doing the physical labor. If not, he was the one making the calls. He was a one measuring tires. So 
it was hard to get a lot of Jeff Bodine quote. And he wasn't a hang around guy after the races. He also had to load the load the car and drive it back to the shop. So he was gone pretty quick. Um whereas a guy like Bugsy would hang around and drink beer with the guys and, and uh you know Ronnie Bouchard was always around late and you know guys like Richie obviously uh guys like that were just more accessible. Jeff was accept- really accessible at the right times and, and always a good a good story. I think he's he sort of got shortchanged by a lot of people because they I remember like somebody would say to me, he's got no personality. I said, he's one of the most driven people I've ever met. The fact that he gives very short interviews doesn't, it's not a lack of personality. That is his personality. You know, that's, that's who this guy is. Absolutely. How how can you not find that interesting? Which is, I think what we loved about O'Donnell. Yeah. And I can see that, you know, and then Jerry Cook was another one that uh, Jerry got, Jerry, this is before I started writing, he sort of had a little war going with the New England media because he thought that they were sort of always on, you know, Bugsy's side or Freddie Becerro's side and even maybe Richie's side and, and, and not on not on Jerry's side. But, you know, like looking back at it, and like I said, this is before I got there, but Jerry uh, was very... Uh, focused and and ran a smaller, tighter team than than Richie did. You know, Richie called all his own shots too, but he was sort of surrounded by more people. Um, he always had that you know time. If you you know if, if if he had any time at all, he'd be happy to give you a little soundbite or a you know a, a quote on something. Jerry was more uh, closed off, just a different personality than than a Richie or a Bugsy. And I think Jerry sort of got undercovered in that time too and you know but a lot of it was you know like i said he i think he saw it as an adversarial thing with some of those that earlier generation of writers uh and he sometimes complained that the new england writers treated him badly but it was sort of you know by the time you got down there to talk to him he was sort of loaded up and gone because you know it might be a friday night at stafford and he might be running saturday night at bowman gray you know and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, so he was loaded up and gone. So he walked away without a, without a quote from Jerry, and it was just, yeah, you know, I, I think as writers or broadcasters or anything, I think you gravitate more to people who are going to give you the colorful uh, story, because at the end of the day, that's, that's, that's the gig. You know, you gotta, you got to give the people, you got to give the reader or the listener uh, good stories and good material, and, and it, it works differently for different people. You know, I mean, I I think going back to, you know, Babe Ruth versus Lou Gehrig, maybe. You know what I mean? Babe Ruth was a partying guy on the train buying beers for all the writer, you know, sports writers that traveled with the team, and a guy like Lou Gehrig wasn't talking to the writers. It just that's that's different. Different people are different. And it's just uh, that's the way it goes, really. But it is a it's a tough uh, it's tough. You know, if you spend your life in it, you're gonna make friends uh, with people who do it. It's it's inevitable. And uh, some of them are mechanics and some of them are car owners and some of them are drivers. And if you happen to write or, or probably with radio, same thing. If you do a story on one of those guys and somebody else thinks that that's your buddy, you're going to hear about it. But you got to let it, you know, you got to let it roll off your back, I think, at the end of the day. Is there a little bit of fun in trying to figure out how to crack kind of that hard nut who doesn't give I- you a lot, but all right, just give me 
try let me try to figure out the questions I need to say to get you to make an answer I need. I always like uh I remember calling we'll use Jeff Jeff again, Jeff Bodine. I remember calling Jeff at Dick Armstrong's shop uh and having him be you know, it's different when you're on on the phone, you're comfortable in your shop, uh you know, they're not calling you to line up for the heat or anything. It it was I just always like to try to figure out the best way to handle one of those guys. It wasn't necessarily like, you know, coming up with the right questions. It was more finding the right setting where they'd be comfortable enough to answer those questions, you know, where they had time. You know, if you call Jeff on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, Wednesday might be bad in the summer because there were a lot of races on, on Wednesdays. But, you know, typically a Tuesday or Wednesday, middle of the week, uh, he was a full-time guy, so you could call him during the day even. And and if, you know, if he wasn't pressed with anything, he'd give you the time. Uh, I always liked that stuff. You know, I like I like talking to, you know, the Gary Ballou was a tough guy. You know, uh, there are certain guys, you know, Mark Martin, uh, certain drivers who are very into the mechanical end of racing. They're harder to talk to because their mind is usually elsewhere. But to me, that's part of what makes them fascinating is they're never going to give you the same answer. There are certain guys in every uh, level of racing, I think, who you can almost guess the answer when you go up to ask them the question. But those guys who are really, really into the cars, they're, they're, they're not in that PR mind. They're not in that colorful answer mind. So if you go up and ask them a question... Uh, I think you're liable to get a more interesting and a more truthful and a less polished answer. You know, they're just going to, it's your job to go ask the question. It's their job to answer it. And so they're going to do that and, and, and then go back to thinking about springs and shocks and all that stuff. So I think it's just a matter of getting them when they're, let's face it. It's not fair to them really to ask them stuff. You know, I know when I'm, I'm a freak when I'm on deadline. I mean, I, I, I'm not fun. You know, it's, if I, if I'm behind on a book project, which I almost always am, or behind on a magazine column or something like that, if something's overdue, uh, I'm not fun. And I can picture very easily how irritated a guy like maybe Jeff Bodine could be, or Mark or Gary Ballou, um, because I'd be the exact same way if my wife walked in at the wrong time and I was in the middle of a great, you know, if I thought just thought of a great phrase to drop into a paragraph uh, and all of a sudden she wanted to ask me about, you know, what do you want for dinner? Uh, it's I'm not going to be a pleasant guy. And uh, I hope I handle it well. And those guys usually handle it well. But I, I try to remember that all the time. Even now, uh, when I'm Sammy Swindell was a, probably a better example even than Jeff because Sammy, the great sprint car driver, Sammy Sundell is, is still a one man band, you know, uh, maybe if he was, if he had two or three people with him working on a car, that was a lot. Uh, usually Sammy was making the decision, measuring whatever needed to be measured, replacing it, putting the new part on measuring that. Uh, and you had to know, you had to learn to read, you know, like the old phrase, read the room. You had to sort of read the pit area. And there was no sense going up to the guy when he was busy because he was either going to blow you off, not rudely, but just blow you off and say he was busy, or he was going to give you an answer that that he could fit into whatever five-second window he had. And that wasn't going to do you any good either. So you may as well wait until, you know, let's wait until after the feature 
um, wait till the car is pushed into the trailer and, and then get your quote. Uh, and the, the benefit of that, too, is that those guys oftentimes aren't asked a lot of questions by the media because some of the media guys, like I said, they think, well, so-and-so's got no personality. We're not going to bother talking to him. So if you're the guy that does go talk to him, you're going to end up with a little bit of, uh, I think, great stuff at the end of the night. Does it? Did it ever fall on you that you could be the difference maker in how the fans view a driver? I mean, did you... I, I ended up having to realize that in the middle of my writing days that crap, they're reading me. And what I say is actually going to matter to a lot of people, um, you know, which is not something that you set out doing. That's never the goal, but it ends up being reality after a while. Um, I think you can make a guy look, you know, like some of the guys we just talked about. If you, and I think this happens with some writers, they, they end up writing that so-and-so is a pain in the ass or so-and-so has no personality or so-and-so is very, you know, uncommunicative. And and I think the reader or the listener who hears that will, will almost instantly form a bad, bad opinion about that person because they trust you as the guy bringing, bringing them that, that, uh, that dimension of the guy's personality. But, you know, to me, that's not, I, I just I I don't think that's a fair way to do it. I'm always disappointed in writers that, and, and I don't mean to look. There's times when 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 a guy maybe is the villain in a story, and you can't be afraid to paint him as the villain of the story. Some of those guys are are very willing villains. You know what I mean? There's this racing is like any sport. You got good guys and bad guys, and a lot of the guys that wear the black hat are happy to wear the black hat. They kind of get off on that, you know, being the bad guy, I think. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, I, I, I think if you approach that black hat guy, even you can not, not that this is your goal, but you can present him in a way, just in a regular human way, sort of round him out where the reader says, you know, I really don't like that guy, but I, I get him a little more than I used to. You know, I understand him more than I used to. I understand why he doesn't communicate very well. I understand why he's a bad guy. Uh, yeah, I guess if there, and there might have been times over the years when I wrote something and, and maybe the reader took it the wrong way or and decided that the guy was, a, a you know, that the driver or whatever mechanic or whoever was a bad guy. But I never, I always just figure if you, if you present the, the best, rounded version of this guy you can you know not trying to sugarcoat anything just try to try to show the person as he is good or bad uh, you know some of these guys are rough around the edges well you don't then you present him as, as a guy who's rough around the edges you know rather than saying that uh sammy swindell or jeff bodine is, is not a good communicator you can paint him as a guy who's so focused that he really doesn't have time you know you can you can write why you think he's unapproachable rather than just saying he's unapproachable because the truth is he's not unapproachable he's just unapproachable at the time that that maybe that writer thinks is convenient to the to that writer you know um i do yeah there's a responsibility that goes with it but i I just think if you do your best you know i've never ever ever set out to submarine anybody um there's times when you write an angry column maybe about uh, a decision or a you know, something dumb that you, and it usually it's not about a single person. It, it might be about a sanctioning body or, a, 
you know, track management at a place or something. You know, I've written angry columns. And, you know, some, of course, the next time you see those people, they're going to be a little angry with you. But that's, that's, that's life, you know. But I've never, I've never ever tried, like, to do, like, a takedown type column or, you know, like, cut cut anybody off at the knees type of column it's just i'm I, i'm i'll tell you i'm really interested in a lot of the you know the guys that sometimes people think are bad guys or or the non non you know verbal type driver those guys that are a little bit of a tough nut to crack i think are more interesting because if you get that if you get into that guy's head you might be the only guy that's ever gotten into his head so you might be the only guy that tells the real story of this person, you know, I did a, just came out, you know, maybe, I don't know, a year ago or whatever it was, a, a book with Sammy Swindell. And, you know, and this was like way, even before the COVID stuff. So it was probably longer ago than a year ago, but, but when I say that only because I remember when the COVID stuff, I was, I was going back and forth to Memphis to interview Sammy every now and again. And I mean, I probably have, 12 or 16 hours of recorded interviews with a guy that everybody told me or everybody always wrote, you know, was very nonverbal. <laughs> Somebody filled up all those hours, you know, it's just, we were sitting in his shop. I'd go, I'd drive to Memphis. We would do, we would do three or four hours of interviews at the end of a day. I'd wander down the street to a motel. Sammy would go home. We'd meet back at his shop in the morning. And before he started work, We'd do another three or four hours. So I was getting him at the end of his work day. You know, once all his work was done, we'd sit down and do our interviews. Then the next day, we'd start off the day by doing all the interviews. So he was never interrupted. You know, you weren't bothering him on uh, on time when he was going to be working. He knew why you were there. Uh, he was great. He was funny. You know, and I've known Sammy for a long time. I always thought he was funny. Um, it, it, those guys, to me, are more like I said, they're more interesting in a way because you, I know that nobody else probably on the planet has that many hours of interviews in, in recorders with, with, with Sammy or, you know, I'm working on a Mark Martin book now and I've got so many hours of conversations with Mark and Mark uh, has always been to me, one of those tough nuts to crack at the racetrack because he's so intense and so focused, but I mean, an amazing history an amazing life, an amazing storyteller got an amazing memory so you know those when if you if you put your time in and do the work and do the research and ask the right questions sometimes those guys are i think are the best you know the the best stories because you know you didn't have to beat out somebody else's sammy swindell story you're the only one that got the sammy swindell yeah. story, story so absolutely i like that kind of stuff to be honest if you've got a home project going on, your first stop should be Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated. From flooring to kitchens, from bathrooms to outdoor projects, from your home to your business, they are number one in Central Vermont. As you've heard on this show, Justin and I are officially middle-aged super dads now. And one of our favorite hobbies is looking at the Barry Tile Facebook page to see their latest projects. I love the carpeting and hardwood flooring, and he loves the kitchen countertops and shower installations. And it's true. Barry Tile has been family owned for 50 years and their experience shows in every single job. It's high quality work by highly qualified people who can design and install everything you need to upgrade your home or office. It's not a big chain store. It's local people with common sense and a ton of skill. 
Be like us and check out the Berry Tile Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. Or you can give them a call at 802-476-0912. You can also stop into the showroom at 889 South Berry Road in Berry, Vermont, and tell them that the guys from Uncommon Deeds sent you. No electricity equals no fun. You have to worry about the food in the fridge going bad. Some folks need power for medical devices and you can't watch Netflix. There's a way to keep your power on and that's with Bushy's Generator Sales and Service. Whether it's Kohler or Briggs & Stratton, Bushy's is Vermont's leader for home standby generators and for Briggs & Stratton portable generators. With manufacturer certified technicians, free in-home estimates, factory warranties, service after the sale, and 0% financing all available, it's easy to see why Bushy's is number one. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service covers all of Vermont and New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. Give them a call at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushiesgenerator.com. Keep the lights on at home and keep your race team running right at the track with a generator from Bushies. Bushies Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. Hey, New Hampshire listeners, Valley Collision and Repair is the place to go for your auto body needs. Whether it's a classic restoration, a vintage race car, or a fender bender on your daily ride, go see Stefan Beattie in Albany, New Hampshire, just outside of Conway. This is top quality work, folks. If you're a classic car collector and you want a true showpiece, this is your place. Drop the car off, leave it there, and let him do his magic. The current long-term projects are a Mopar muscle car and a 1967 Austin Healey. Real beautiful stuff. But since it's New England and we're just coming out of winter, there are lots of little dings and dents and scratches that you want to get cleaned up. Stop on by Valley Collision and Repair to get it done right. Stefan Beatty has been a racer for 40 plus years, so you can always relive old memories while you're setting up the job with him. But when it's time to get some serious show quality work done in your car, there's no better shop than Valley Collision and Repair. Stop by on Route 16 in Albany, New Hampshire, or call 603-447-6112. Valley Collision and repair going into kind of those long sessions are you a over prepare and then kind of you have what you need or do you let them kind of steer where they want to go i always have you know (laughs) what's the old cliche 20 questions i might have you know 60 or 80 questions written down in in loose leaf notebooks and i'm going to ask somebody the thing you've got to be very conscious of, and, and everybody learns it after a while, don't get so focused on what your next question is that you're not listening to the guy's answer to the previous question because there's times when the follow-up, you know, the, the, he might steer the conversation in a certain direction that, that almost demands a follow-up, and if you're not paying enough attention to ask that follow-up, you might be missing out on some great, stories or great you know something something funny or poignant or uh touching or tragic you know a, a lot of it is in just paying a, enough attention to the uh to the person you're interviewing to you know the, the the questions that you bring are you always do get back to them but you don't want to just absolutely stick you know one must follow the other type thing because i, I think you it ends up being like i said you miss a lot of that stuff that that comes up in the follow-up questions that you would have never thought to ask if you weren't paying close attention. But I do over-prepare, I think. I mean, I always, I always bring just, you know, page after page of questions. I do a lot of research. I'm probably 
a ridiculous amount of research, but I never want to get caught in a, you know, in a lie or in a, uh, not, not in a lie on my part, but uh, even, even the guy you're writing about, you don't want to let them be caught in a lie. It, and I'm talking about, like now about the book projects, especially because most of the books I've done have been uh, co-writer deals with the person. So it's, you know, let's say the, you know, the title of the book, and it might say by, by Tony Stewart with Bone Force here on it. Um, so you don't want to let, I take a part of my job, I think, in, in cases like that is being responsible enough to, to fact check, not just what you know yourself, but, but their story. You know, it's like when I was doing the, uh, did a book on Richie Evans in 2004 or five, somewhere back there. And when I did it, you'd be shocked at the number of people who said, I'll never forget, you know, the New Yorker 400 at Utica, Rome in 1972 or, you know, pick a race. And they'll say, yeah, you know, I couldn't believe it. He lapped Ray Hendrick on his way to winning that thing. So you look it up because you never want to, you know, yeah, you're quoting the other person, but why include it if it's, if it's just not accurate? Yeah. Yeah, so I go, we, we've run into that here on the show several I, times with drivers I, misremembering or creating their own memories yeah, well, you the, know, with career milestones, you know. Went back and looked up the finish of that race, and not only did he not did Richie not lap Ray that night, the Utica Rome was a it was a four hundred the New Yorker four hundred was a four hundred lapper, but it was running two two hundred lap segments. And this guy told me that he lapped Ray in both of them and Ray ran second. And I ended up getting the, I had a, like a top five of every race ever run at Utica Rome and geez, Ray wasn't in the top five. So I chased down a full field rundown and it turned out that Ray wasn't there at all that night. So Ray had run the New Yorker 400 the year before and Rich had beat him, but not by a lap. So it's sort of like, man, if not, there's no sense you know going with all those stories if they're that if they're that inaccurate you know at the end of the day your name is on the book also and and now in that case the book was by me so i was maybe extra diligent about that but but even when i'm doing like a co-writer uh arrangement with it with you know where it's technically by another person with me as a co-author i i put a lot of focus on making sure that the finished product is at least as truthful as, as we can make it, you know, have you, have you, I want to interrupt you for a second with that in mind. Have you had to tell a driver he's wrong about what he says or what he remembers or, or, you know, correct him on his memory? Yeah, there's been a couple of times, but a a lot of it's just silly stuff. Like they, they might misremember a year uh, that something happened. And if it's, you know, you got to remember too, a lot of these guys, uh, I use Buzzy, Bugsy for an example. I mean, Bugsy drove for Lenny Bowler for quite a number of years. And then he drove for Sonny Cazella for quite a number of years. And so I would guess that, you know, it's not like he dropped into a certain race and drove one race for a guy and won it. You know, he's got to try to remember, you know, he probably won 150 races. He won Bugsy's career total is somewhere around 300. And it's probably pretty evenly divided between Lenny's cars and, and Sonny's cars. So there's a lot of wins that he's sifting back through his memory uh, that you're asking him about. So, yeah, there's been times when I'll say, hey, I looked up that, you know, the, the, the race you told me about and 
so-and-so didn't finish second. It was somebody else that ran second. And usually they remember. I mean, it's, it, it never becomes, you know, they're not mad at you for, for setting them straight on something. They might just misremember it. I misremember a lot of things. You know, a lot of great races that, that I swear I remember every lap of them. And then you go back and read, you know, accounts from that period and you got it all wrong. You know, you, you just, it just got turned around in your head. You know, you remember, you remembered one version of it for so long that it became the truth. But the the thing about drivers and the question that you asked is if you, I mean, luckily most of the guys that we do books about are not only, I always, the number one rule is they have to be interesting, but number two, just by definition, almost, you know that they've been successful. If you want to do uh, a book on them, or if you think a publisher wants, you know, if a publisher asks you to do a book on them, uh, you know, there's somebody they're pre- they've been pretty successful in their life. The problem sometimes is the guy, if a guy races for 25 years and wins two or three races in his life, it's it just been a weekend warrior journeyman type of racer. If he's got a very small number of wins, most of the time he can tell you everything about those nights, you know, and if a guy only won one race ever, he can tell you who he rode to the racetrack with, where they stopped and got a coffee, where they stopped on the way home, because that's one of the biggest nights of his life. But if you talk with some of these guys that have won two, three, four hundred, five hundred races, um, you can understand where it starts to get a little blurry after a while. You know, like you think of a guy, and I keep bringing Bugsy's name up, and Bugsy's got a great memory for stuff, but I'm just using him as an example. I think he won 73 races at Stafford in one of the golden ages of Stafford. And most of those were against the same basic group of competitors, you know, Ronnie Bouchard and Eddie Plenke and Bobby Santos and Leo Cleary. So it's, it's only, I mean, how the hell can you remember of those 73 wins, you know, which is the night that uh, Eddie ran second or Bobby Santos was banging your back bumper or whatever it was, you know, it's, I can see how it gets blurry with some of those guys. And, and this kind of goes back to the uh, being over-prepared. I mean, a, a lot of times what I've done and what I did in the Bugsy book, I spent a lot of time at, at the time Val Lasser was still alive. So I went back and went through the speedway scene archives of all of those years that, you know, looking through paper after paper just because I wanted to ask him the right questions. And I wanted to know who ran second or third in this specific race. Um, so over preparing helps avoid those situations because usually you can correct them on the spot. You know, if, if a guy said, well, you know, I, I, I won by two laps that night. No, no, no. Different race. You know, you won by two laps the previous year in that hundred lapper. I'm talking about the night that so-and-so ran second. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, again, I think it all comes down to you. Ultimately you want the final product to be as truthful, uh, as it can be, you know, you want it to be full of their opinions and their colorful personalities and all that, but you don't want the reader to find some glaring error on page 10, um, you know, and say, well, that never happened. You know, he never lapped so-and-so in that race because, if, there, if that sinks into the reader's mind, there's a, a good shot that he might not fully trust anything else in that book. You know what I mean? If you, if you, if, if, if you give him a few lies that he can pick out right off the bat, why would he trust anything that's on the other, you know, the following 300 pages? Mm-hmm. Yep. I remember <clears throat> my first race 
for DEV. I had met Justin one time a couple days before, and me and him and Amy were going to carpool to Lee for the race. And like a day before, Justin messaged me, said, hey, I got these two guys that are writers. Can they hop in? So we got five guys in my Chrysler. On your, throughout your years, are you a solo road trip guy? Or do you have any friends, you know, hopping in and making a drive? I thought you were just going to say, do you have any friends and end it right there? Uh, well, you have Justin at least, so there's at least one. That's a, yeah, but we're a thousand miles apart, so it barely counts. Honestly, I, I sort of do prefer... Uh, all my life, really, I've sort of preferred if I was going on writing trips, especially, I sort of like to go alone. Um, I'm more of a solo guy than a ride along kind of guy, although they're, you know, I mean, I've been married for the last 10 years, almost 10 years. So and I got a great wife and she's from a racing family and she likes, you know, everything I like, she likes. So it's not a not a problem. And, and um, but when it when it comes to, let's say when I was going to Memphis to interview Sammy, I didn't want to bring anybody else with me. You know what I mean? I wanted to go down there and, and um, have the flexibility that traveling alone gives you. And when I first moved out to Indianapolis in 97, I didn't know a lot of people out here. I knew a small handful. And, you know, I was going to a lot of sprint car and midget races. And I, one of the great things was the racing out here, in the second half of the nineties was exactly like the racing in new England at the second half of the seventies, where you'd see the same guys Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night, and sometimes on a Wednesday. So you were around these people a lot. So you made friends very quickly, but I didn't know a lot of people super well for the first couple of years. So it was important to me. If I was going to a track looking to write a column, I didn't want somebody riding with me who'd maybe, would be anxious to leave, you know, an hour after the feature because I might be hanging around at the, you know, outside so-and-so's trailer because I really wanted to talk to them for this column I was putting together, you know? So it, it does become, I think, more of a solo uh, pursuit at, at, you know, at that point. You sort of would rather just be alone with your thoughts, uh, not worrying about, you know, should we be hitting the road or, you know, what are we doing after this? It's just, I think you're sort of going there on on a job. You're going there for a purpose. So a lot of times it was better off to just sort of go alone. And even back in, in, the, in the New England days, a lot of times, um, I was always big on going to people's shops, too, to interview them or, or offices. If somebody like Ken Squire, you know, if you're going to go interview Ken Squire, why do it at the racetrack? Why not drive to, you know, what was it? DEV, was that the name of it? Yeah, WDV. Yep. Yeah, why not drive there and, and, and listen to his crazy Saturday morning music to go to the dump by and all that stuff and, and, and then interview him after that? You know, that was that was a lot more fun. So, yeah, you go get in the car by yourself, go do it. And then you're also alone with your thoughts on the way home. Um, and you've almost got the first couple of paragraphs. Yeah, written that's in. when you write this. That's right. In your brain. Yeah. Sometimes. I think yeah. I think there were some nights where Tom wished that we had written separately. Because <laughs> um, I was always writing on deadline, like you talked about deadline. I was always on deadline for two papers, right? As well as doing the radio broadcast. And Tom is there. It know, was a quiet ride as Justin hour, just stared in. His... Hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can picture yeah. that. It is easier, I think, and it's probably 
ultimately it's easier on the person that's riding with you who probably wishes they weren't there at that point. You know what I mean? Because you're not communicating and you're, you're sort of alone with your thoughts. You're right where you want to be. You know, you've, you've just done some great interviews and you're in your head, you're already writing your lead for these two different newspapers. Um, or in my case for a magazine or whatever. And it, you know, you want the, and I, a lot of times on those trips, I would carry a, a blank pad next to me on the passenger seat because, you know, an hour after the interview is done and you're you're an hour into your drive home, you might think of a great line that if you don't write it down now, you might never remember it again, you know, uh, because you've got three or four hours to drive and, you know, you're you're busy with the actual mechanical part of driving, you know, holding onto the wheel and watching traffic signs and all that. And so there are times when it's good to be alone with your thoughts and to have that pad of paper there and a functioning pen and just write down, you know, this great line that you thought of. And a lot of times, you know, the next day when you when you look at that pad, it might be a line that you never even end up using. But at the time, it crossed your mind as a as a possible great line to, to use. So, yeah, I think solo was the way to go on trips like that. And I'll now, say, I remember a few less than exciting races. I could look over and Justin would be writing his article midway through the feature. And he's already got the winner listed. And he just kind of fills in the blanks at the end. Wow, yeah. announcing. Yeah. <laughs> That's not uh, good. Probably now, the best. So traveling solo is fine, but when you get to Martinsville and the whole circus is there, there's got to be some nights where you end up in a hotel where Richie's got his rental car in the pool or whatever. You know, I mean, what are some of those moments that you could share? I think the statute of limitations is probably passed at this point. What always made Martinsville fun, and I think it was – you know, I mean, and the, the modified still run there. It's a different thing. You know, guy, the social scene has changed. Um, there's more money in racing, which I think, you know, whenever there's more money, there's more pressure. Um, back then, you know, you raced three or four nights a week with the same people. So we all saw those people three or four nights a week. But what was perfect about Martinsville, their big races were in March. Uh, you know, the, uh, there were all, there was a spring race called the Dogwood 500 and a fall race called the Cardinal 500. Both of those races were 250 lap modified races. And the second half of the doubleheader was 250 lap late model sportsman, which later became the Bush series. And the beauty of it was when you went to Martinsville, most of the people that you saw there, you hadn't seen since either last fall at martinsville or maybe last november at another race somewhere at the turkey derby at wall stadium or somewhere but you've gone most of the winter without seeing 90 percent of those people uh unless they had gone to daytona and you'd gone to daytona you'd run into them there but so that spring race at martinsville was almost like the best part of the first day of school when you're a kid you know, everybody, you think, well, the last day of school is the best day, but there's something magical about the first day, too. You know, seeing all the friends you hadn't seen uh, over the summer. And in the case of this Martinsville race, it was seeing all the friends you hadn't seen, you know, over the over the winter. And you saw all the new cars. Um, you were just so happy to be, re you know, I was from Connecticut. So you, and, and for a little while from Massachusetts, you got to see. You know, the, the Zombacks and the Harbacks and the Tommy Baldwins and all the Long Island guys you hadn't seen all winter. And the, you know, the Evanses and the Bodines and the Cooks and the, you know, the Troyers. 
uh, from New York that you hadn't seen all for the most part all winter, except some of those guys went to Florida. Um, so there was always that little bit of that you're in a good mood because you're seeing your pals again. And on the opposite end of the year, that October race really was almost like a last day of school feeling like the, you know, you, the parties on Thursday night and Friday night, uh, Saturday night wasn't always all, all fun and games, but the other, the other two nights were crazy. And, uh, it was, it was, you knew you were going your separate ways come Sunday and you didn't know how the race was going to go on Sunday. So because of that, you sort of had to, you sort of had to get it all out of your system on Thursday and Friday and, and to some extent Saturday. So those races, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a different time. I, you know, people, racers were more social. There were more of them. You know, you might get, let's say 50 cars at these Martinsville races going for the 30, however, 36 spots or however many there were. So there was less money involved. There was, uh, again, that social element, that multiplier of just the fact that you spent so much time with these people. Uh, they were your buddies. You didn't have to wonder who you wanted to hang around with. You knew who you wanted to hang around with. You knew, you knew who the fun people were. You knew that if you saw Bugsy in the restaurant at the Dutch Inn, that you, you wanted to either be at that table or at a table very close by. Uh, and it was the same with Evans and those guys, you know, in, in the, in the bars down there. Um, it was just, it was fun stuff. You know, it was, <laughs> it, it, I, I never had a bad time there, honestly. I mean, there was some, you know, obviously some tragedies there over the years and, and obviously that's a bad time, but I mean, from a social standpoint, there was nothing more fun than, than Martinsville in the spring and Martinsville in the fall. Pocono and Trenton for the race of champions. Those two places were fun. And again, it was sort of that same thing. The race of champions brought in even a, another dimension of guys, guys from Lancaster, you know, way out near Buffalo and uh, guys from wall stadium. A lot of those people from the non NASCAR tracks that didn't necessarily go to Martinsville, they all went to the race of champions. So you had those guys in the mix too. And, and uh, it was fun. You know, I mean, Martinsville was a little more fun because there were, you, you either stayed at the Dutch Inn or right over the hill at the Holiday Inn. Uh, that's where the parties were going to be. So, you know, you could walk. If you didn't want to take your car, you could walk 300 yards. If, if you weren't already at the best party in town, the best party was just 400, three or 400 yards away. You could walk down the road and, and get in on it. You know, it was, it was just, they were different days. You know, I mean, there's, there's a story about, you know, Bugsy Stevens walking through the dining room at the Dutch Inn with a completely naked Canadian woman who he didn't know sitting on his shoulders, you know, and it was just, you, you can't. And that was three weeks ago. <laughs> and Bugsy, I mean, only Bugsy would do something that nutty and, and not just do it. He didn't just walk through the restaurant. He stopped at all the tables and said hello to people as if there wasn't a completely naked person. Like there was nobody there, you know, and he walked over to Clay Earls's table and Clay, of course, owned and promoted uh, Martinsville. And I think was, Clay was probably half half horrified and half amused because they all loved what a character Bugsy was. So, you know, there was stuff like that happened, you know, almost constantly at Martinsville. Maybe maybe not quite to that extreme, but not far off. It was just it was a good time. It was a lot of fun. Oh God, I love it. Um, listen, you brought up tragedy and um, sort of as media people, this is our responsibility to report that as well. Um, how do you handle losing Richie Evans or, 
you know, guys, guys like that, it's, you know, it's never an easy thing. And then to, to lose a superstar, Dale Earnhardt. I mean, I'm sure that you were central to all of these terrible moments. How, how do you, you know, you in a way prepare, you can't prepare yourself, but how do you handle it? In a way you sort of, uh, those stories I never really found hard to write because there was, you know, there was so much emotion there that it just almost poured out of you. So it's awful to think that it was easy. I don't, I don't mean to give the impression that it was easy to write or that you like doing it. Obviously it was, you know, damn difficult, but I, you know, it was, I think I, I never ever remember getting emotional writing about those things. You, it, you went home and you did it, or you went back to your hotel room and did it. Um, maybe after that, you know, like once you were done, you know, it was, you know, now you, you know, not now that's when it hits you, you know, you, you, you know, you, you, you remain very stoic while you're doing it and you try to do as good, a, you know, you, you try to do the same good job on that column that you would do, uh, on the column that you wrote about a guy who won the only race of his life. You know what I mean? It was, it's an important day and you want to get the importance of the day in, you know, and some pers- personal feelings into the column, but you know, you, it's almost like in those moments, I think the job sort of takes over and then you go home and you want to blow your brains out. You know, <laughs> you, uh, that's sort of when it dawns on you, I think, you know, I remember, you know, with Charlie Jazombeck's incident was one of those and Corky Cookman at Thompson, uh, was one of those incidents. And, and, um, uh, there's Dave, there was a guy named, you know, a lot of the guys we're talking about were big stars, but there was a guy named Dave Fioroni, uh, who was just a Saturday night guy from Agawam, Massachusetts, a local guy who worked on race cars. uh, And he'd raced a little bit himself and then they built a modified and he was, it was a brand new car. He was so proud of it. Uh, And the first night he ever, and I knew the guy really well. He was a guy that everybody knew him. And that wasn't just me. I mean, everybody in the pits knew him because he was a guy from Agawam. And he'd been with different crews and all that. And he he went out that first night with that brand new car. And I think the throttle stuck or whatever. I mean, a little quarter mile track like Riverside, you couldn't imagine this happening. And his car sort of submarine broke through the first turn guardrail. And uh, Dave was dead, you know, and it was one of those uh sort of one of those things where you everybody in the pits is looking at each other afterward you can't believe that this just happened but at the same time you know you knew you had to go home and write a column about it and you just do it you know and that you don't you know in that moment you know you're not really grieving you're just trying to get across what a neat guy he was and you know you're sort of trying to like i said earlier about trying to let the reader in on who these colorful people are you know in in that particular moment your job was to sort of tell the reader who didn't know dave ferroni what a neat guy he was and you know he was never a superstar um he was just a guy that you know a local guy who raced but everybody liked and he was everybody's pal and you kind of wanted to just show people why he was everybody's pal and it was the same you know corky cookman was a quiet guy real quiet guy but i knew corky pretty well and uh you know, you sort of wanted to get the best side of Corky, or the not not just the best side because that's not your job, really. Just get the most interesting interesting side of 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 that guy to the reader. You know, like just show, you know, like 
you know, drive home the fact that this wasn't just a guy who hit a wall and died, nor was Charlie, nor was Richie or any of those, or Jimmy Champagne or any of them. They were, there was something about those people that you wanted to make sure the reader understood, um, you know, in, in telling this, in telling this story, because there were other stories in the paper about how it happened, what happened, you know, where the crowd, you didn't have to go through all that, you know, for me anyway, as a columnist, they just, I just sort of wanted to write columns about who those people were. And like I said, it's, it's weird to say, and, and sad, to, sad to say in a way, but those are, they're, they're easy, easy pieces to write, you know, it's yeah, t- I know exactly what you're talking about. It's yeah. after that, that you feel like, you know, like shit, Breakdown. like everybody does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you just, cause you don't, you, I think you just put it off, you know, until, until that, you know, until you get done with the, with the assignment. It's happened even since we've been out here, you know, there's been Jason Leffler was a pretty good friend. Dave Steele was a real good friend. You know, you lose people and uh, you know, the different, like I really didn't have to write about those, uh, those guys, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really covering those beats. It was just that they were, they were pals that I knew from when we were all, you know, when we had all just sort of moved here. Um, so it's, it's a little bit different, but yeah, when I was in new England and, and, uh, you know, there was a bunch of guys in a fairly short time that, that lost their lives. And so you sort of got, you hate to say you're, you got, you were in good, you know, that you, that you got a lot of practice at it, but you sort of did. And, uh, like I said, they, they're, they, you they're easy to write they're just, it's just hard to deal with the aftermath of it you know you just put your head down and do it and then i guess you mourn or do you know the when the worst part is you got to go to a funeral after that you know it's those were not uh those were tough years for sure real tough no uh no easy transition uh from that topic but <laughs> no good segue right yep uh but tell us a little bit about you know mentioned being in new england you start there how do you start integrating yourself into indie racing and you know you're hanging out with the uncers and the andrettis i i don't know i mean i always loved uh the the history of indianapolis i even living in connecticut i don't know why this was but from the time i was a even before i started going to the races i would you know read racing books that i picked up at the local library I was into the history of that race, and to me, it was like I'm not a horse racing fan, but I watch the Kentucky Derby every year just because it's the biggest thing. You know, it's like watching the Masters in golf. You know, I I don't play golf, I don't really watch golf, but if you happen to be home on the day that the last round of the Masters is playing, you may as well watch the last four or five holes. It's the biggest thing in that sport. You see the emotion of it. So I was always into the Indy 500, and when there came a point when I, and it was in 95, 96, I knew I wanted to relocate and I had a zillion friends in Charlotte. I I hardly had any friends here. I had acquaintances here, but really no friends, but I loved the idea that number one, I'd, I'd be moving near the speedway, you know, the Indianapolis motor speedway, which would be that, you know, it's like Yankee stadium or Fenway park or whatever, whatever, you know churchill downs whatever you want to associate with it's it's the place and the uh there was no real racing in charlotte and people laugh when i say that there if you live down there there is no racing going on down there there you know there there's cup racing and bush racing and that's all great but i mean like there's no 
the short track scene there was was dead you know it's still not really great um but i mean there was no racing there and and uh, yeah all the teams are located there but i didn't get into this to go look at fancy beautiful shops you know you wanted to go to races so out here there was a lot of racing to go to i knew that and like i said the speedway was sort of the, the indianapolis motor speedway was the big hook i've just always been into the the history of it, the fact that even to this day, if you go to, if you're at Indianapolis in May and it's a Thursday afternoon practice day and you're standing in the, in gasoline alley, you know, the garage area at Indy and, and Bentley Warren is there or Danny Zimmerman or, you know, guys that we knew from new England that had very, very brief and not entirely successful runs uh, at Indy. You know, Bentley ran there twice. Denny ran there a few times, but neither one of them had any success there. Yet there are still fans in Gasoline Alley who will chase after those guys and they will open a little briefcase they have and they'll pull out the eight by 10 photo of Bentley Warren that they've been carrying around. You know, they carry these photos of everybody who ever raced there. You know, Indy, the fans at Indy honor the history of the place and the track management has always honored the history of the place. Um, and you got to love that. You know, you got to love that when a Denny Zimmerman walks through the pits, he can't believe anybody even knows who he is. You know, he's he, a guy that maybe finished 21st or 22nd, or, you know, I think he had a his rookie year. He might've run eighth or something. Um, but my point is he wasn't, you know, he never won the race. Uh, he didn't have a long run of success there, but there are fans there that know who the guy is. And, and, I knew that that sort of culture was was there long before I moved here. And it was sort of, it just felt like a, you know, it almost was like a, it's cliche to say it, but it was like a big magnet. The speedway and the and the history was, was like a big magnet. And I, I never went to the 500 until the year before I moved here uh, because we were having so much fun going to the races, you know, up and down the East Coast. But I'd always watch it that night or uh, listen to the radio broadcast on Memorial Day. It's always been sort of a hook to me. And then once I, you know, I was writing for Open Wheel Magazine for a long time uh, before I moved out here even. And you wanted to do stories about the legends, you know, the Foyts and the Andrettis and Johnny Rutherford and uh, the, you know, the Answers. And it, it was, they were the guys that you, that sort of laid the groundwork for, for why I loved it. So they were, most of them were retired by then. So it was sort of fun to go and, you know, they were more accessible because they weren't as busy. You know, Foyt was still racing a little bit, but, but most of those guys were, uh, you could line up an interview with them and then you could meet them at Michigan or Indy or wherever and, 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 and do an interview with them. And to me, they were always like the, you know, the Mount Rushmore type, you know, like Robin Miller, you mentioned Robin early, Robin had a, t-shirt made up with his own personal Mount Rushmore racing, which was uh, Dan Gurney, Parnelli Jones, uh, Foyt, and Mario. And, you know, you knew where all those guys were, so you might as well, might as well come out here and try to find them all. You know, that was the, the big pull for me, is that, 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 like I said, the history and the people, most of the people who had written the history that most interested me were still around at the time. It's still, you know, still accessible. And, you know, I mean, we've lost since then, Bobby Unser passed away. Al Unser passed away. But, you know, just a few weeks ago in May, Johnny Rutherford was at the Speedway. Foyt was at the Speedway. Mario was at the Speedway. 
uh, Gordon Johncock was in town for a few days. You know, you, uh, it, it's to me, they're, they're the, you know, they're the Babe Ruth's and the, or Bill Russell's or whatever sport you want to compare it to that. Those are the guys that, uh, that got their hooks in me when I was a kid. So, um, that's why, <laughs> but, but how do you, how do you get to the lunch table now at this point? Cause like every time I see you on Facebook, you're sitting there with, Carnelli, or you're sitting well, there, you know, with yeah, Bobby Unser, you know, or that that's a that's a whole different scenario than the guy with May, the briefcase, though, I mean, you know. In May, the lunch the lunch table gets a lot busier in May because all those people are in town. But I, I knew Robin for a long, long time, um, and he would always say, "Come to lunch, come to lunch, come to lunch." And I was always busy with you know book stuff or you know uh, magazine columns or whatever. Every now and then, I would go. And I always said, boy, it'd be fun to do this every week. And and then the only way to make that happen was to start doing it every week, just sort of carve the time out and go do it. And the interesting thing, you know, Robin, Robin could be, and you know of Robin as a writer, he could be the biggest and would be the first to tell you the biggest pain in the ass in the world, you know, to promoters and even to some race drivers and to sanctioning bodies. Robin was very curmudgeonly. But he had a heart of gold, and the, his sole purpose for doing those lunches was there are racers like Lee Koonsman, a great, great natural talent who just never had the chance to be a superstar. Uh, Merle Bettenhausen, uh, Gary Bettenhausen would come sometimes, uh, 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 Poncho Carter sometimes. You know, a lot of those guys, they they didn't go to many races anymore, and for 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 a couple of them that was sort of their big thing you know uh, that was their social robin did it more for them than for him you know what i mean it was let's let those guys come out and have fun you know a lot of them would just you know we're homebodies by that you know a lot of them are old some of them are some of them have been banged up by racing and by life and you know they're injured and they don't walk so well and you know so it's easier to just stay home than to go out and have fun well he sort of you know, made it a point to get them out every week to have fun. And that's what it turned into. And it, it just sort of so happened that during May, when, you know, like some of those, you know, you Parnelli Jones, Bobby Unser, uh, Wally Dallenbeck, Bentley Warren, uh, Jigger Saroyce, uh, you know, Poncho, Merle Bettenhausen. Uh, I mean, you'd look around and you, there'd be, not only would there be, 10 or 12 or 15, uh, Johnny Rutherford, you know, not only would there be maybe 15 Indy 500 wins sitting at the table, you know, asking you to pass the ketchup or whatever, but, but there'd be, there'd be more than that many um, Indy 500 starts, you know, guys that guys like Bentley who ran the race and were part of the race and highly respected by all those guys I just mentioned. Um, So it was fun for all those guys to, uh, you know, it, it was fun for me and for most of us to just keep our mouths shut and just listen to those guys talk and bust each other's asses. And, you know, I mean, it, it was, they came from a very, most of them came from a very dangerous time in racing and they all have that sort of gallows humor mentality that, that so many people that grew up in that generation had, you know, in racing, they're fun loving people, they're hell raisers. Um, it's sad that we've lost some of them here recently and Robin even, you know, I mean, the, the, the lunch, there's still a Friday lunch table that goes on. I haven't gone, you know, actually in quite a while, but you know, a lot of those guys still go and it, it's, it's, uh, 
it's it's something that you know it, it became like a cherished thing for those guys and it was the it was i think probably when they started going you know the, the lee Koonsmans and merle bettenhausen's and guys like that i don't think they realized it was going to be as much fun as it turned into you know now it turned into something that that they don't dare miss you know so it was uh and and i love you know to me the the beauty of it is just listening to the stories of the time they ran, you know, sixth or seventh at Trenton and had a great, you know, for some of these guys that never really had good rides in Indy cars, they were underdogs, but they, they blistered them at Indian or at uh, Trenton or Milwaukee and ran, you know, Bentley, I think finished fourth at Milwaukee one time. Well, that's as interesting to me as listening to, you know, uh, Johnny Rutherford talk about one of the Indy 500s that he won. And Johnny's a damn interesting guy, but all of those guys have stories to tell, and they all had similar backgrounds. Most of them, most of those guys came from nothing or 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 close to nothing. You know, they were scrappy people who climbed the ladder only on talent. You know, who slept in their cars between sprint car races. You know, Johnny Rutherford tells great stories about running the old. Uh, there was a the IMCA uh, back in the day. They sanctioned something called the fair circuit where they ran county fairs and town fairs and state fairs anywhere that had a little horse track they'd run a sprint car race there <clears throat> and some of them were horrendous places but some of them a lot of them were three or four hundred miles apart so you'd run somewhere now this is back before interstates so you know you'd load up a car on an open trailer and and, and hook it up to your station wagon and at the end of the night at some little fair in in iowa Dubuque, Iowa or somewhere. Now you might've had to run to, uh, you know, Hutchinson, Kansas or somewhere the next day, you know, so mm. you were driving through the night to get there often by yourself. Uh, Parnelli Jones and Jim Herdebeach traveled together for most of those races in that part of their careers. And the two of them would ride in a station wagon and they, they put a platform level with the top of the seats going from the back of the driver's seat, clear to the back window that was the upper bunk. And then the other person would slide in underneath that and have the lower bunk, you know, and you think, boy, the talent, you know, and uh, Parnelli, yeah, and, right. and Parnelli and Foyt uh, both have told me the story and I've confirmed different details of it with both of them. The two of them were in Atlanta to run a stock car race in 63 or four. Now, if it's 63, Parnelli hasn't won the 500 yet, the Indy 500 yet, but he was on his way to winning it. The two of them were sharing a room in Atlanta to save money. Okay, A.J. Foyt and Parnelli Jones. At midnight, there's a knock on the door, and it's Jim Herdebees who can't find a hotel room. You know, there's very few hotels at that point near racetracks. Mm -hmm. And he knew Parnelli was in, the whatever, let's say it was a holiday, and he knew where Parnelli was staying. So he went there, got their room number, knocked on the door. And they all went there. They found a place between the two beds where her, you know, her to could sleep on the floor. He had his German shepherd with him. So his German shepherd came in and was sleeping in the corner. And you think of the talent in that room. You know, that's the amazing yeah. thing to me. The you talent. It's unbelievable. You know how great those three guys, you know, her got hurt before he got to be the superstar that those two guys were. But if you talk to each of those guys, they'll tell you he was as good or better than them. So you think of, just you know how how cool what what a different world it was back then and and that's what what those lunches tend to unlock is stories like that because 
you know, Bobby Unser would tell a story. Or it, it'd be better the other way. Like Rutherford would tell a story and Bobby would top it because Bobby could top anybody's story on any topic in the world. You know, he, he was just a, he led a wild life and had a great storytelling ability. So uh, those, you know, and that's part of living out here to me is you're sort you're never that far away from, from that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's, a, that was the big part of that magnet that first got me out here, you know? And like I said, some of those guys are gone now and that's a shame because, you know, Bobby in particular was an amazing storyteller. Um, but all, you know, Al, Al Unser was a little bit less of a storyteller, but all those guys are fun, um, you know, to not have Robin Miller around to be sort of the glue that pulled all that together. Uh, that's a little tough, but, um, you know, it's, it still does go on. So we enjoy it. All right. Time for our Barry tile quick hitters, and then we will let you go. Mm hmm. First up. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said Barry Tile. Is that B-A-R-R-E? Yes, sir. Okay, now I'm happy. All right. All right. Is there a race that you haven't been able to get to that you still want to try to make? Um, I'm a I, – since another thing, since I was a kid, I've been a Formula One nut, you know, and, and – a lot of my oval track friends are not, and I, I sort of keep it to myself, but I mean, I, I've been a, uh, an addict for that stuff for so long. So there are races in formula one where you think, boy, it'd be really cool to go there. But, you know, realistically, I'm not going to go to Monzo or, uh, you know, Monaco or someplace. So I probably won't get to any of those, but boy, oval track wise, um, you know, the uh, luckily, I mean, the most of the ones that you would think would be on the list, you know, the Knoxville Nationals I've been to a few times, Snowball Derby I've been to a few times. You know, most of the the big marquee short track races I've been to, um, I'm sure there's a few that are missing, but, you know, Indy 500 I've been to many times, Daytona 500 many times. I never, I never have been to Darlington at all for a race. So that would be cool to get there just because of the, the history of the place, but I can't think of one that, you know, if I don't ever get to Darlington, it's not going to kill me that if I had never gotten into the Knoxville nationals, that would have really bothered me, but, or, or the snowball derby, you know, um, and I've been fortunate enough that, you know, Turkey night, the great midget race in California, every Thanksgiving, I've been to many of those. Um, so I, I think I knocked most of them off the list that I really feel like I have to get to a couple I'd like to get back to, but if I don't, I don't, you know, it's, I've been there once, so. Just a quick follow-up, and I was going to ask you this, and I didn't because we were getting towards the end, but as a guy who spent his career with the written word and, you know, trying to grow the sport that way, how do you feel about what F1 has been able to do in just exploding based off a Netflix show? Yeah, they caught a lot of things at the right time. I mean, with with – you know, you, you hate to take advantage of something like COVID. And I don't think they set out to take advantage of it, but that thing happened to sort of debut when all of us were starved for racing, you know, and, and naturally as a formula one nut, you know, I, I ate it up, but you know, if you were starved for other kinds of racing too, and you found that by accident, it was a good time to find it because you weren't going to as many races. So it worked out perfectly. I, I think, 
you know, immediately there was talk of NASCAR trying to copy it or, or IndyCar trying to copy it. And once you try to copy something like that, now you're looking for drama, you know, where I think uh, Drive to Survive, the F1 show, I think they, they caught a lot of drama that naturally happened. And maybe there's, you know, five or 10% of Hollywood type polishing on it. But you could just picture that if, if NASCAR had done theirs, it would have been polished right from the start. You know, like that would have been the goal. We have to try to be as colorful as that. You know, when you set out to do something like that, it, it you, now you become sort of a weak imitator. It, it becomes forced, you know. IndyCar did a thing called um, 100 Days to Indy. I don't know if any of you guys caught it. It was on um, the W, one of those. I hate to call them one of the minor league networks, but it, it was like the WB or W, whatever it was. Yeah, on. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, and they and it was interesting. You know, they they followed three or four, maybe five different drivers in the in the build up to Indy, and they they picked the right guys who were colorful people, but not really forced. You know, none of more none of more acting up like clown. You know, Will Powers an interesting guy, Joseph Newgarden's an interesting guy, and and they didn't they were good about not trying to make those guys into something that they weren't. So I, I think it did, you know, I, I, if people were lucky enough to find it, it probably uh, helped make some new fans. But yeah, I think formula one kind of caught lightning in a bottle, especially here in the States where they really needed that kind of exposure. They got lucky with the timing of it. And I think the, 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 the first few seasons, especially of drive to survive, I thought were amazing. Fantastic. My my quick hitter question, Bones, is always: What's the dumbest? Are these thing supposed you to be ever... short answers for these quick hitters? Or don't worry about it. It's okay. the podcast world. Um, my my question is always: What's the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car? But I guess I can't ask you that unless. No. Have you driven anything? Uh, no. So I'll ask you: What's the dumbest thing you ever did behind a keyboard? Uh, I guess dumbest... that made it to print. <laughs> Oh, that right. well, the dumbest thing probably doesn't never did make it to print. And I'll tell you why. I went to Pocono. I was living in in uh, Connecticut at the time, so going to Pocono wasn't a big deal. It was like three hours, and I had to go there to interview. Didn't have to. I wanted to go there and interview a um, an IndyCar driver, and I won't mention his name because I know him pretty well, and he's never brought this up since then, so he probably doesn't remember it. But I, I drove to Pocono and interviewed a guy on Friday, a practice day probably like an hour and a half long interview that I was going to do something in open wheel magazine with. Um, and those guys were actually <laughs> Dick Bergen and those guys were waiting for it to be done. I drove to Pocono, did the interview. The guy was, uh, was uh, one of these drivers. That's good to, you know, good guy to talk to, but would, would challenge you on things like he would, he was argumentative on some answers and, but in a good way, it was a great interview. Uh, and it was about a three-hour drive home to my uh, home in Connecticut. And on the way home, I got a little bit bored, and I went to play the uh, interview back. And this was in the tape days. And this is the first and only time it's ever happened in all these years. I had never, apparently never pressed record. There was nothing on the tape, zero. So that, to me, was the dumbest thing I ever did because – Number one, it was it's part of the job. You know, you went there to interview a guy, get the damn interview. But number two, it was a good interview. You know, I, I, it was one of those deals where on, on the way home, you're sort of writing the lead to your little introduction to this Q&A. 
Uh, and there was no, we just never, we never did anything. And I was too embarrassed. To ever, I didn't know the guy well at the time. I know him real well now, but I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't dare call back and arrange a second interview and explain why we needed a second interview because the dumbass writer uh, couldn't figure out how to run his recorder. But that's the dumbest thing I think I've ever done. And luckily it was the, the only time that's ever happened. I did that with Richard Petty one time. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh man. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. So you know the feeling. Yeah. I have failed to hit record on this podcast before. Oh, that's, that's, that's true. Even <laughs> luckily, luckily when we did that, it was just Justin and I doing an open yep. and it wasn't with the guest at the yeah. time. Oh, that's good anyway. Yeah. Didn't waste the whole thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. Final question. If you can sit down with your recorder for two hours with anybody past or present, who would you want to sit down with? Oh, man. Um, boy, that's real tough. Now I, I was going to say my first answer off the top of my head would have been either Foyt or Mario and ask them just about, I, I've loved in the past talking to Foyt, especially about his midget and sprint car days, because not a lot of people ask him about that stuff. So he, he, he's happy to do it and he gives great answers and, but I would like to go and ask stuff about those days that I never asked before, you know, like what's the, you know, I mean, the traveling stories, the driving all night stories, the eating bad food stories, the, the, you know, uh, he wasn't always AJ Foyt, you know, and Mario wasn't always Mario. I mean, all those guys had to kick and scrap and, you know, fight their way up. You know, they were good enough that, that the rise didn't take very long but it was still a, a fight. Um, you know, I, I probably, I, I guess probably one of those guys or you know, from, from just a fun standpoint, you know, Bobby Unser maybe, but uh, you know, then there's like Bill France senior, maybe, you know, guys that back then, you know, the writers, I think were afraid to ask some of those guys, the, maybe the kinds of questions that you'd want to ask them, you know, it was a different, the racing press back then I think was sort of a go along to get along type of a thing. And it would be, it'd be fun to ask, I think Bill France about the times when maybe he thought NASCAR wasn't going to make it, you know, I mean, uh, all of the, all those successful guys from way back in the fifties and sixties and forties, you know, they, no matter what part of racing they were in mechanics or, uh, or drivers or promoters or sanctioning body people, they all had to claw their way up. And, and to me, that's, that's the interesting stuff. Jim McGee, the great IndyCar mechanic, told me one of the best stories I've ever heard. He was from our neck of the woods. He was from uh, maybe Brockton, Mass. He's from or somewhere near Norwood Arena, but it, he wasn't from Norwood. I think he was from Brockton. Anyway, uh, he got into IndyCar racing by helping a guy who had a cut down back then who built, a, built his own Indy Roadster that was never very successful. But Jim McGee himself drove to Indianapolis at the beginning of May because he wanted to try to get a job working for an IndyCar team. He had made brief contact with somebody out there from a team who said, yeah, come out. We can always use extra people during the month of May. McGee drove all the way by car from Massachusetts to Indy, got to the track. They had, they had lined up a pass for him. But when he walked in and spoke to the guy in gasoline alley, the guy said, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, somebody got here before you did. And we gave them the, the job that, that, that we were going to give you. 
So McGee got in his car and started driving back to Massachusetts, and he got to the Indiana-Ohio border, state line. And he said to himself when he saw that, he, he said, if I continue on this drive home, I'll probably never go back to Indianapolis. So he turned around right at the state line and came back to Indy and just swept floors for people, did ev- did anything he could. And, I mean, he became a chief mechanic that won – you know, six or seven Indy 500s and a number of IndyCar championships. So to me, those are the stories that, you know, everybody's got a story like that. It's just trying to go and find those stories. So it'd be, it'd be fun to try to find, you know, the, the great untold Foyt story or Andretti story or, uh, you know, Jan Opperman's story. I mean, there's so many guys living and dead that would be fun to talk to. Uh, It'd be fun to talk to guys like, Eddie Flemke and Richie Evans, you know, one more time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> There's not one that stands out. There's a lot of them that stand out. Well, Bones, uh, this has been fun. And, uh, it's a different, it's a different interview for this show. We, we usually are almost always exclusively drivers. So, um, this is a different side that Tom and I can relate to being, you know, on that end of, of the racing world. So we appreciate your time and, um, looking forward to the Mark Martin project for sure. Um, that's going to be super cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you guys. Thanks again to Bones. Man, he brought some good stories. And you can tell, listening to him answer, like, you can hear, like, the long-form writer in the answers and the imagery and setting everything up. You know, I think part of, you know, his answers were, were long, but as people who tell the story, you, me, Bones, Anybody else? Alan Ward, who we've had on the show once or twice. Oprah. Twice. Oprah. Uh, they're always the ones asking the questions. We're always the ones asking the questions. We're never the ones giving the answers, right? So when it's time to Except for that one it, podcast episode. That's right. Kevin and Marty. Uh, so, like, when it's time to give answers, we're going to get it all out because there's never another, there's another, another opportunity for us to do it. So... <laughs> But I'm, I'm grateful is, for the, the stuff yeah. that we got from Bones. It was really good. This is our podcast, and we'll still never get a Justin and Tom part two. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, guys, make sure you're following us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. I don't have a song planned. You can also shoot us an email, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. And also on all the socials, Uncommon Media VT, that is kind of the landing spot for everything we have going on, Uncommon Media wise, between this show, the new sports order, No Fouls is back, baby. And oh, man, you've got shows and. Game of the week yep. and all kinds of good stuff. Game of the week up this week, which was 1992 mm-hmm. Girls Division Two State Championship. Buzzer Not beater to win it. Nine lead changes in the fourth quarter. Whoa. Great That's game. A good game. 
That's a good game. And uh, we'll have another game of the week coming at the end of this week that ties in with this week's guest, Joe Salerno. So, And you were telling me a little bit about Joe Salerno before we started recording this. Dude has some stuff. I can only imagine. I haven't heard the interview, but whoa, has that guy lived a life. Yeah, I mean, he's a central Vermont kid who started coaching and decided to take a chance and try to make it a full-time thing, and he has done that. And he's literally traveled the world coaching, you know, professionally in Canada and the Vermont Frosties and got a chance to coach the Syrian national team for a little while. That was wild. And now he's doing uh, coaching a university in Canada. So tons of stories and obviously started out in central Vermont as a basketball player for Spalding and Montpelier and coached at Montpelier. And he was pretty excited to kind of tell some of those stories. So we're going to tie it in. And he did get to play for a state championship in 2000. They unfortunately lost in overtime. But that's going to be our game of the week this week to tie in with the podcast. Oh, nice. Cool. I really did enjoy the um, show last week with Sarah Roy, Sarah Massetti Roy. Um, and, of course, we've got the connection with with Paul and uh, MJ. And, by the way, thanks to MJ for supporting our story time efforts with Pro Heat. Um, but I, you know, I think I've said it a few times. I don't know anything about the people that you speak with on, on no fouls, but I find myself riveted to their stories because they're just very relatable. I think it's the same with, with this show. You may not know any of the guests that we have, but you end up knowing them by the end of the show. I, it's, it's really enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, Sarah told some great stories and some, you know, got me right in the feels, man, mm-hmm. telling stories about, you know, her parents and yeah, the the covid story and i don't I, if you haven't listened to it i don't want to spoil it but the the covid championship yeah event was just uh that was a that was a story man yeah yeah so make sure you're following us on all of those socials that we gave you i believe we'll be back next week with a story time we missed one last week but i've got i've got two half story times written so and he didn't fully love either one last week right. and he's hammering out one <laughs> that's why we didn't get this one this <laughs> week uh so be ready for that i think that's all i got for for today i think i'm yeah i'm about checked out for energy for tonight i yeah i'm exhausted from the races over the weekend and father's day and gardening and all the things and getting geared up for Bear Ridge on Saturday with Scone. I'm going to keep plugging it. I don't care. Go go see a Scone race at Bear Ridge. And buy a Scone. They're delicious. They're delicious. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Uncommon Deeds, a production of Uncommon Media.